I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? Doc Askins coming back at you with another one of these Q5 podcast episodes that I know you love so very much, where I ask my five favorite questions to some of my favorite people wandering around still above the ground on planet Earth here. So I've got a treat for you. I've got my friend Chad McLean, the CEO and founder of Mental Joe Apparel on here. He's a husband and a father and a volunteer of all sorts of backgrounds. I think it was the Special Olympics and Habitat for Humanity in there. He's a good dude. All around good dude. Uh, I was a ranger once upon a time, allegedly. Done all sorts of cool stuff. Glad to have you on the podcast, brother. Hey, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. And allegedly, I, w- I, always, I always call myself, if I may, the broke dick ranger. Right? <laughs> I was there long enough, but ended up blowing myself up on a, on a jump that I burnt in on. And that's kind of where history yeah. uh, took a turn. Just, just leaning leaning forward far enough that you, you managed to collect that's all it. the scuffs. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, no, I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to kind of diving into the backstory and the why behind Mental Joe and and how we we kind of came to be uh, of sorts. So, you know, kind of my story is uh, I'm a Montana kid. I grew up in Billings, Montana. Um, grew up in a, in a single single parent household. Uh, I was in the middle of three kids. My brother's oldest. He lives in Chicago. And then my, my sister lives up in Prescott Valley here in Arizona. And we reside right now in Peoria, Arizona. But grew up there. Grew up extremely poor. You know, uh, had a very verbal and physically abusive dad. I probably took quite a bit of the brunt of it. Um, I had a brother that was, you know, he was, he was excelled in school and just kind of kept to himself. And he had the younger sister that, you know, she just kind of rolled with the punches, had two older brothers that were going to protect her. And, you know, she, she had it, you know, she kind of had it made, I guess you'd say with two older brothers. Had a little top cover. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I hate saying it, but you know, the story goes is the reason we call our company mental Joe is, you know, I'm a pretty average Joe. You know, like, you know, I'm just trying to make it through life to the best I can be the best husband, father, friend, family member as possible. But I have these stories that I repeat to myself over and over and over. And I have done for, you know, 20 plus years, you know, the, you know, I'm not worthy of love. I'm a loser. And, you know, we, we tell these stories to ourselves over and over enough. We, we believe them. And, you know, for me, the, the catalyst to clean up my cobwebs, if you will, and I know we'll get deeper into it was ketamine. But for 20 years, I was on some kind of SSRI or some kind of pain pill because of my back. 
and through growing up, you know, we just kind of grew up tough. Like I said, we're really poor. My mom worked five to six different jobs. You know, I helped her clean offices. You know, I was a C student in high school. I was more of the the social butterfly. You know, I, I stopped playing sports when I was a sophomore. I just, I didn't practice enough. I just didn't care enough. I, I wanted to be around friends and stuff. With that, knew my runway was slowly coming to an end in high school. And I, I didn't, I had, I had no plan, no plan at all. So enter the military. So I went to the military. And I think some of that kind of reflecting now and kind of connecting some of the dots was the military was my way to maybe go prove to myself that I could hang and, and be with some alpha males and maybe even be a male role model that I needed because I didn't have that at home. Went into the military and went in as just a good old 11 Bravo grunt, you know, didn't, didn't score well in the ASVAB. Again, I'm a C student. I just didn't give a shit. I just knew I had to put my name in a box, checks a couple of things and off I was going. I didn't care what I was doing. Like I didn't really put a whole lot of thought into it, to be honest with you. You know, jumped into the ASVAB, went 11 Bravo and just put my head down. I was, I was very used to working hard. Working hard was easy for me. It was not, it was not strenuous at all. Um, so basic training to me was pretty easy. It was just put your head down, shut up, do what they tell you, and you're not going to rock the ship, essentially. And about the eighth weekend, which you know in infantry, I think it's, what, a 12 or 13-week total with the end there, I ended up getting an airborne slot. So I got an airborne slot given to me, I, you know, same thing that the drill instructor, I remember him, you know, calling out my name and, like, almost pausing, like, we have this guy in the platoon? Like, where is this guy? Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> the gray man. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, I was doing what, what needed to be done, right? To not be noticed, but to do a hard enough job and push through to where, I, you know, I got an airborne slot given to me. From there, went into airborne school um, and the 75th Ranger Regiment liaison came down. Um, in fact, 75th Regiment is literally, I think it's two miles from jump school. Might be a mile and a half. I, I don't remember exact, but... He came down. I was like, yeah, man, I can wear a black beret. Shit, yeah, let's do this. That's before the Army issued everybody right, black berets, right? Berets, right? Yeah, they right? slapped it out for yeah. a recruiting commercial. That was the whole reason I signed up, right? It was just the hat, the floppy hat. Yeah, yeah. The hat, the beautiful black beret. You know, and now, we're, now they're the khaki or the tan. My head's cold. Yeah. What do I do? Join the <laughs> Army. So went down and uh, got into RIP, which is the Ranger Indoctrination Program. Went through RIP. Again, same thing. I don't know numbers-wise, 100, 200 guys in class, something like that. It was a big class. I think we, they all normally start out pretty large. And then I think we ended up graduating something like 30 or 40 max. So, you know, that you can see the cut rate on that. So, you know, I made it through. He's a Hall of Fame Ranger. Uh, his name is Jeff Struker. I was his last RIP class. And I, I remember him. Okay. Uh, very dearly. Legendary. Yeah, very legendary. And you know, I remember him talking to us as he's smoking us outside before a long run, um, doing flutter kicks. And I remember him just walking, you know, through formation saying, gentlemen, you know, I, I won't raise my voice. I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to yell. He goes, but you're going to know when I'm upset. And you'll find that out this morning. And so he kind of told us his story about Mogadishu and how he's a reborn again Christian. He was getting ready to go into to officer candidate school because he was going to go be a chaplain, which he all accomplished and became a, a, a chaplain for the 75th Ranger Regiment. But man, we knew he was upset. This dude took us on a run that very few individuals made. I actually made it. I remember him running by me and just saying, keep pushing. We're almost done. And that is, that was a pivotal moment for me just in, in RIP knowing, okay, I have the gusto 
to do this stuff. You know, I got this guy that's a Hall of Famer, you know, in Ranger Regiment who everyone looks up to telling me, you know, keep pushing forward. So I graduated, graduated RIP, and then was stationed out at uh, 2nd Ranger Battalion out in Fort Lewis, Washington. Was in 2nd Battalion for, I think, right out a year. And what happened, probably about the sixth month or seventh month mark, I was getting ready to transition over to uh, sniper section. There was some talk. We had to fill some different slots. I was actually a, a Gustav gunner, which is a 84-millimeter recordless rifle. Oh, Carl. That's it, Carl. People know they know, and it's it's a beast. Getting ready to transition over to sniper section, and we, uh, lo and behold, we did a night jump into Spokane Fairchild Air Force Base. It was a whole battalion jump. We are doing an airfield seizure, and you know how those jumps go. They don't usually, there's quite a few people that get hurt on those jumps because it's a large battalion. You're jumping at night. We all know the round shoots that there wasn't much of a give back in those days. You couldn't really pull on risers and guide yourself. It was more of a safety thing. And I ended up burning in. I burnt in on a jump. I don't remember if it was 50 feet, two feet. I don't. It was just, I remember a shoot below me and knowing that I had to run off the chute so it wouldn't take my air. And before you know it, I'm waking up on the ground and it's pitch black and I'm feeling my legs and I'm wondering if I got a compound fracture and both legs are completely numb and I'm laying there. And I don't, the time is nothing to me. I have no idea how long I was out. I have no idea how long I was laying on the ground for, but that's where essentially I would say life altered largely for me. And the reason I say that night is, as you know, in most combat arms, it's here's your Motrin, shut up and drive on. Well, imagine being in one of the most elite infantry units in the world and you're in, you know, essentially part of the SOCOM and you don't say anything. You shut your mouth. There's plenty of dudes that got hurt. In fact, we lost readiness status on this jump. And I believe a lot of second range battalion guys that I've run into, they still use that jump as a learning lesson because so many things went wrong. The Air Force flew the wrong way. The jump masters let us jump out the door. We had guys hitting hangars. We had guys hitting planes. And I never knew any of this, obviously, until the debrief and we were back at Lewis and we're talking about it. But even at that time, everything was so fuzzy. I think I major concussion. And so at that point, I, I, I just started, I started popping pain pills. As you're very aware of, there's a, you know, these little towns that are just on the outskirts of bases where you get your BDUs pressed or you get your hair cut. And, you know, there's massage parlors to pharmacies to you name it. You can load up on used car goddamn. salesmen. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's just a ring around every active duty post, right? I got a great That's deal it. for you. He's got a full tank of gas, man. Yeah. Being a, a spec four in Ranger Battalion, you know, I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm on the uptick here. I've, I've got to settle in. I got to figure this out. And before you know it, I got no emotional intelligence to make these decisions. And I'm popping pain pills and I can operate on them. And before you know it, it's, you know, it's, it's a perk. It's an oxy. It's ibuprofen. It's whatever I can get. Right. And I'm just storing this shit up because it's not every day that my back hurts, but it's more of that sciatica, right? Like everything is good for about a week or two, but man, you, you just turn wrong or something, and it's, it's game over. Just a little inflammation, and the whole thing stays inflamed. That's it. Yeah. yeah, and you can't, you know, you can't put, you know, your socks on, your boots on. So in lieu, boom, pain pills, let's go. And so that was my demise. You know, I started popping pain pills. I started getting in fights, started drinking way too much, was stealing from the PX. Just a myriad of just shit decisions. And at that time, battalion was kind of a free-for-all. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And candidly, I think I was 
we're going to make an example of this guy to let these other yahoos know that if they don't straighten their act up, like there's a lot more that's going to go down. That was brought in forth in front of Bravo Company 275 for Sergeant Grippy. I remember it vividly, and he roasted me right in front of the whole company. I had to confess to what I did, and again, as we all know, bat boys, right? Bunch of testosterone, a little bit of blood in the water, you know? Uh, it's the come to Jesus moment, yeah. That's it. That's it. And so I, I took punishment, man. I took punishment pretty on a pretty regular basis for... I'd probably say it's probably close to two months. And I would say that was where a lot of the trauma and a lot of um, the fight out of the corner stuff, because I already had that with my dad. I was already fighting out of the corner constantly. I was never, never, I realized recently with, you know, some psychedelic treatments that I always fought out of a corner, you know? And so some of the battalion stuff just added to that. And it was just like, okay, well, I'm pretty good at fighting out of corners. Like I already do it. I knew in my mind, failure equals punishment. You know, so I'll, I deserve this. You know, it's coming. I have it coming. These guys got to prove a point. Bring it. Let's go. It's trauma bonding. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. You know, went from there and then I got kicked out of Ranger Battalion. I went down the road to 125th Infantry Division where they, I believe that post is no longer in Fort Lewis. I think they all reside in, in Hawaii now, the 25th, uh, essentially electric strawberry, if you will. And so that was it. You know, you get a kid like me that, you know, didn't have a real good father figure growing up. You feel that the military is going to be that for you. You get in there, you're excelling. And the next thing you know, the wheels completely fall off. And I am starting right where I signed up. Just 11 Bravo, bang, bang, grunt, you know, and to try to sit with that to be, you know, close to the tip of the spear, you know, because that's where a lot of guys start their soft careers off is in Ranger Battalion, especially in the Army, right? That's where they start it. And then from there, they, you know, kind of walk that ladder up. And that was the goal. That was the dream. That was, you know, I wanted to be a tip of the spear guy. And when I blew my back out and I got kicked out of Italian, I felt that was the end. I was like, there's no way I'll ever, you know, make it through selection. There's no way I'll ever get back to battalion. And I was busted. No one knew. I was popping pills left and right. I was depressed. My back was hurting. I was, I was a freaking wreck. But that was, that's kind of the, the, the large pivotal moment where I think everything for the last 20, 23 years, sadly, was all tied to was, was that, was that incident over in Spokane. Yeah. Major tipping point for you headed on, uh, sounds like a downward spiral. Yeah. Yep. And it just ensued, you know, from there, when I got out of the military, I went back home to Billings, Montana. And, you know, at that time, I think Billings was maybe 80,000, 90,000 max, maybe bringing in some surrounding areas. So, you know, in general, it was a small city, small town, whatever, whatever label we want to put on that. But, you know, same thing. What do you do? I, I go back and started college, ended up getting recruited by Allstate Insurance and went and had my own Allstate gig for a while. And, you know, prior to that, though, I was working at the city of Billings and, you know, shit, you're just a blue collar working guy. You know, I'm a street and traffic guy and you know, there's a bar at the top of the road every Friday and we're, we're up there drinking every night. So, and I'm still on pain pills, you know, so I became a hell of a bar fighter. I fought shit. I don't think there wasn't a weekend. It'd be rare if a weekend went by and I wasn't in a bar fight. I think it was just so much anger and disappointment, resentment to myself and knowing that how bad internally I was beat up with my back. I, I think I just kind of went into the mindset of, you know, someone whooped my ass, you know, who cares? Like I'm already beat up, like break my neck. You do me a favor, really. 
So just, I, w- I was in a complete downward spiral for, I would say easily 20 years, you know, there would be points in, in, in that 20 years where, you know, things would go good. I'd be single. I wasn't in a relationship. I just focused on me. I started losing weight. I didn't, you know, so I knew there was another potential. I knew that old kid that had the gusto to, to get through rip was there, but I think my confidence and everything was just so beat up. That's the only way I felt like I gained any kind of respect or authority was whipping a bigger dude's ass in a bar than mine. And then people saw that and said, Oh, we're not going to mess with this guy. He's a little, he's a little loony, you know? And that's how I felt I could gain respect. So that's kind of the 10,000 foot version, if you will, of kind of where I got to and where the suicide attempt took place almost three years, just a little over three years ago. And what happened there is the same thing. I was, I was wore out. I think I was tired of the stories in the head. I, I continued to fail. I continued to falter. And, you know, like many other stats that were out there, you didn't think that there was another way out, right? I was, I was doing the SSRIs. I was on anything from a Wellbutrin to a Paxil to a Zoloft to, I mean, you name it. I ran through them all. And I think I was just tired and, you know, like I said, roughly three and a half years ago, almost took my life. And, uh, you know, I'm very candid about it. I went into the cuckoo bin and I was there for almost a good two weeks and, you know, just had kind of an epiphany telling my wife, like something has to change. I don't know what's going on in my brain. I don't know what's going on, but I know there's certain aspects that are not connecting and I need help and I'm done doing this pill thing and I'm done doing talk therapy because none of it works. And all I do is keep repeating the same damn story to, to a different person and I'm tired of it. So my wife ended up finding ketamine and went in probably three weeks later at way to go, Carrie, shout out to Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, you know, so she did that and I, I candidly told her, like, I really don't want to know much about this. I'm going to go in blind. Like I don't want to set up any, you know, expectations or thought processes around it. I'm going to go in, I'm going to listen to the clinic, what I got to do, and we're going to play ball. Like I was just open to change anyways. And I think, you know, better probably anybody that's, that's the first step forward. Like when you're at that pit, like it's, it's time to step forward and figure out another method. And so I went through the ketamine and, you know, before you know it, I was doing ketamine, you know, so I did the, the initial six blast that they do up front. Sure. The induction. Mm-hmm. And then from there, like I really started paying attention to my body, right? And and understanding the the gritting of the teeth or the clenching of the hands or the or the speeded up heart rate and realizing, okay, again, these these are tools that everyone has, but we don't realize that you know how powerful they are. So you know, I, I started realizing my body and realizing that I get agitated at certain things, and so then I would look tell Carrie, I was like, okay, I, I think I need another ketamine hit. Like I got to go in and reset this brain again. So after the six, I, f- I feel it was probably every 45 days I was going in and getting a, a ketamine reset. Yeah, that's good. And then from there, it went from 45 days to like 65 days. And then 65 days turned into 90 days. And then 90 days turned into quarterly. And the whole time that I'm doing this ketamine, I'm bringing myself off of meds. Because when I came out of the cuckoo bin, they put me on 150 milligrams of Effexor. And you know how big of a dose that is. I was completely dead to the world. I was numb. I had no feelings. I was just a walking zombie. And probably a year into my ketamine treatments, told the wife, I said, okay, I think it's time. I think I'm in a pretty solid spot. It's time to come off this stuff. 
And so I went from 150 milligrams down to 75 because that's the next, what's weird is that's the next break in medication. It doesn't go 150 to 125. It's 150 to 75, 75 to 37.5 and so forth. It's how they put the, the breakdown on these is besides me. Um, but so we can have that conversation a different day online. I'll, I'll explain the math to you. Yeah, right. I, I, there's a reason. It, may, it does make it. sense. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But for us knuckle draggers, I'm like, what the shit? Is, what are we doing here? Thirty-seven and a half. What the hell? Exactly. So I go from <laughs> yeah, one fifty to uh, to seventy-five, and holy shit! I now understand maybe the effects of someone that goes through that has alcohol withdrawals or is a heroin addict and they're coming off of this stuff. My body hurt so flipping bad. I don't think I got out of bed for like a week. I just told, like, all I could do is just take a shower and brush my teeth and just kind of slowly get her. I was in pain. And she's like, are you sure you don't want to go back on? I said, no, like mentally I'm in a very strong place. I know this is going to hurt. I know it's not going to be for long, but I have to push through this because I'm done being on this shit. So Finally got through the breakthrough, maybe three weeks, maybe on that fourth week, I, I kind of saw light at the end of the tunnel and everything was kind of starting to feel normal again. So now I'm on 75. So another six months goes by. Now I'm probably ketamine every six months. I'm probably every six months to four and a half, maybe depending upon life and the situations. So same thing, still doing ketamine at the same time. And so now I'm at 75 and, you know, I looked at the wife again. I said, okay, heads up. I'm coming down again. Like I've got to get off this stuff. And week one went by. I was like, okay, that was pretty easy. Week two went by. Okay. That was pretty easy. Before you know it, I'm on 37.5. Now I'm on this 37.5 for probably two months. And I finally said, okay, I need to be done with this stuff. I've got like just mentally, it felt good. Like my diet was in line. Working out was a part of my life again. Like I had all these other things that I, now I have put into my life. We call it in this space integration, right? So now I have all these new That's things. Good yeah. Now I have all these new things that I have latched onto that are much more healthier for me. And I said, all right, we're done. So I ended up doing a psilocybin retreat. And during that psilocybin retreat, the only thing for six hours, I kid you not, all I saw was a white pill bottle that literally came into a screen, almost as if I was looking at a big movie screen, and it would just fade right back out. Mm -hmm. That's all I saw for six hours. Mm. And so kind of after the debrief of that, you know, with the, the coach that I was with, I was like, hey, man, like, this is really all I saw. Like, I tried pulling my mom in. I tried pulling my sister in, my brother, my wife, my boys, anybody that I thought maybe I had larger issues to deal with, and nothing came into fruition at all. It was literally just this pill bottle. And so when we were talking the next morning and kind of sitting there in, on the patio and I was like, what do you think that is? And he just kind of looked at me, he goes, personally, he goes, I think it's the sh mushrooms telling you, you don't need the drugs anymore. You don't need to be on the SSRIs. I think, I think you could probably come off that completely. And mind you, I was still on 37.5 milligrams of the effects are, and because psilocybin and SSRIs have a problem with each other. It's like two rams button heads. I almost took a full eight grams of mushrooms to counteract sure. the SSRI. So I took a heavy dose. It wasn't just your, you know, one or two grams. It was, it was a healthy dose of mushrooms. And that's literally the only thing I saw this entire time. So that, that morning I went home and I opened up the old pill bottle and 
threw those things down the toilet, flushed them, and it'll be this November that I've been off of SSRIs completely now for a full year this November for whatever I took them for the past 22 years or so. Wow. And it's, I have to say, I mean, not only was I in a good space and I had a wife that stood by me and knew the shit that I was going through and she could hold that space for me, but to be off of that stuff and be in a true foundation of where I feel I am as a human being now is like, okay, there are other ways to do this. And that is kind of why I'm such a large advocate for psychedelics. And, and then through that, that's where essentially mental Joe was rebirthed as an apparel company through the psychedelic experiences. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. Yeah, you're kind of doing a great job of handing me a pitching me a softball for the second question there, right? Like, uh, I appreciate you, you know, opening up and sharing about your story and about all the, you know, the skull dragging through the hard times that you've done. And, uh, I know you're, you're functioning a little bit like a scout down there in Phoenix, trying to figure out some good places for people to go to. And if you're in Arizona and you need, you know, you need some good advice about places to go for some treatment, you might be a good guy to, to reach out to as far as I'm concerned, but no, uh, yeah, hundred percent. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll just piggyback on that before you jump in. You know, the wife and I, and I know you're going to talk with her soon. We have people probably on the daily that reach out to us. And the reason they do it is just because, again, I'm that average Joe. You know, I'm not the tip of the spear guy. You know, I did fail. I, I, I wasn't there. And I am the guy that worked in the insurance company and corporate real estate for 20 years. I am. I'm, I'm your average Joe. And people are resonating with that to the case where we have right now, we have five veterans that are in ketamine clinics that we essentially recommend here in the Valley. And then I've got one buddy who is currently doing ayahuasca in Peru for three weeks on the heroic hearts project. So yeah, it's, it's really cool to see. Yeah. It's really cool to see, right. Because we have people that have been watching us from the sidelines or just, you know, over the fence and now they're reaching out and they're reaching out in droves to the point where almost Carrie and I cannot keep up because we have people reaching out and I'm texting or, you know, you know how it is there. You, you get hit yeah, up on yeah. LinkedIn or Instagram yeah. or your cell phone, or it's like, I can't keep up with it all. But the good thing is, is people are reaching out. And that was the whole point behind mental Joe is to let people know there's other methods, there's other modalities, there's other ways of healing. And we can get out of this traditional box of here's your pills and let's talk about it. There's other ways to go about this business. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think you articulated that perfectly. So I won't even try to add anything to it, but I'll just roll on to the next question about what, uh, I asked you about your story, which is about your past, right? And now I'm going to ask you about your intentions. Where are you headed with, uh, the next chapter? Yeah. I mean, the intentions for this is to be a very noticeable brand, right? I always say eventually, and I look at like our t-shirts cause they're fun. Like you guys can kind of see if you're watching video, the grenade hat that I have on, we try to elicit those conversations with those types of t-shirts, right? Kind of in your face, but little subtle, you know, hints of psychedelics or, or what have you, but eventually we want to be an athleisure brand. And the reason behind the intention set for the athleisure brand is the athleisure wear industry is $330 billion currently. 
Okay. It's projected to double by 2030. So I tell people like, imagine if I had a freaking sliver of that, right? You would, you would, ha- you would have, you would have, give me 1% of that and I will quit my day job. Well, it's not even that. I just look at like, I want to use capitalism for what it is. Right. But I also want to flip it on its head. We all know the grotesque stories of nonprofits that get all kinds of money in, and sadly, only 5 or 8% actually goes to the veterans themselves, right? Because sadly, most nonprofits, what do they need? They need cash to operate, right? So that's where we're like, well, why wouldn't we be an apparel company? We could sell something. We could draw a message. We could build a community. People are going to be wearing these shirts, which is going to create other people to talk about it. The brand will grow. And then once we are profitable, we can use profit for a purpose and we can turn around and we can write checks to heroic hearts or no fallen heroes or healing frontline heroes or, you know, the myriad of foundations that are out there that have veterans that are going to their retreats overseas. And and some of them, you know, right here in the United States via the Etho churches. Right. But that's my whole goal. That's the intention is if I could be an athleisure wear company. Think about it. You're a doctor. You don't want to wear the the big, you know, psychedelic thing. But if you had a really cool, clean polo that still represented mental health and it was like a, a Lululemon of the average Joe poor, poor man version, <laughs> you would wear that polo. Yeah, yeah. You would yeah. still support the brand. The brand would grow. And now I'm writing million dollar checks on a quarterly basis to these foundations that guess what? All they had to do is heal people. They don't have to worry about golf tournaments. They don't have to worry about galas. So that is the full intention behind the brand. Make the brand so big that I'm writing checks to these foundations. So all they have to do is focus on the healing. They don't have to focus on raising money, right? If you need money, go raise money, but use that to you know run your organization. Let us be the money. Let us be the, the wheelhouse that writes the checks so you can actually go heal these people. And you don't have to sit here begging corporations for it. I'll be that corporation for you. That is the large, true intention behind Metal Joe. I like it. That's genius. It's like, a, you know, it's a cool funnel that everybody wants. You know, it's like a water slide funnel. Like, yeah, we, this was fun. But, uh, you know, you're hoovering up a whole bunch of dollars to send out and do good things and pay forward, right? Exactly. And, and we're set up as a 501c3 too, right? And so the whole, again, the thought process of that is maybe there's someone that really believes in the plant medicine space, but they're in a corporation. And they're like, eh, we don't want to really donate because we can't be really tied to the plant medicine. But hey, maybe this apparel company. And if we give him X amount of dollars, that'll help him, you know, catapult his company forward. And then boom, on the backside, like said, profit for a purpose. Oh, and guess what? Now you get a write-off as well. So you help the company grow. Yeah, you're thinking strategically. That's good. Yeah. So we try to set it up that way to where it's it's a continuous circle of of giving and and being able to be above board. And my biggest thing is be transparent. I've got a CPA and a bookkeeper. And that was the first two people we hired. Cause I was like, I don't want our books a mess. I want it to be clean. Like we file every freaking quarter. People can go look how big in the red I am, <laughs> you know? So I, I want to be transparent because there's not enough nonprofits out. I'm not saying all, but we know there's plenty out there that don't do what they, what their intentions are. So. Yeah. It's an integrity check. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yep. So. That's a beautiful intention and I'm all for it. Uh, you know, you let me know 
where and when you need me to pitch in on any of that stuff and I'll, I'll do what I can with whatever I got, you know, but you know, looking ahead, looking back, the bridge that I like to use between those two things is gratefulness for like making sense of things. I think gratefulness is a superpower. So what are you grateful for, man? Man, I don't know if there's too much that I'm not grateful for now, to be honest. Yes. There's the, you know, I got a beautiful wife. I got beautiful kids. My family's good. You know, I wish my mom and, and, and my wife's dad, I, I wish they were both in, in way better health and could enjoy, you know, things a little bit more with us. But I understand too, that, you know, time is of the essence in, in that standpoint, but I really am. I, I, I really, before these last 22 years, I, I didn't really live present and I never understood when people say you got to live present, you know, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Live present. Like, I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't equate to me. I don't understand that. I do now. I can literally sit in the moment and I can stare at my boys and I just watch them for who they are. I watch them play. I watch them make good or bad decisions. My wife just calls me the creeper because I will just sit there and I'll just, I'll just sit there and stare. It's the best. Because I'm, I am of the know now that this is all we have. Right. And I'm not trying to be woo woo or booga booga or anything weird, but like the present is really all we have. Right. I, I don't know what the next couple hours are going to bring. If we even have that much. Yeah. The whole world could be crumbling here in the next hour. You know, there, there could be something that completely, you know, off roads my, my ability to, you know, to, to function, whether I get hit in a car accident and I lose a leg or whatever, that's going to happen. Right. That's already set in stone. Same with Mental Joe. Where we're going with Mental Joe, it's already happened. I already know where we're going with this thing. I just got to build it there. And so that's, I'm just, I'm so grateful. I mean, for my health, you know, I'm down a total of 50 pounds now. I was 70, I was easily 70 pounds overweight. So I just, you know, I smile a lot more. I walk a lot slower. I shake a lot more hands. I say hi to more people. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, you gave me a coin at Psychedelic Science. That's why we're friends, right? I just wanted I wanted one of them shiny little coins and you gave yeah. it to me. Now we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I got more too, buddy. I got a couple extra. I'll send some to you. But yeah, I, I am. I really am grateful for a lot of things. Could could there be certain situations in life and during the day and hours that could be different? Yeah. But I don't let them rock my boat like they used to. I look at them for what they are. So yeah, I know it's a long-winded answer, but goddamn, there's a lot of things I'm grateful for, and and the ungrateful stuff is very, very small now in in my wheelhouse. Yeah, no, that's beautiful, man. I love that answer, absolutely. So with all of your story and all of your intentions set and all the gratefulness in your heart, what are you creating? Man, I I think I'm creating, and I don't I hate using the word legacy, right? But I think I'm creating something here where when I'm dead and gone, the apparel company will continue, whether it be the boys or we get bought out or whatever that looks like. But I feel we're creating a community and an awareness that you don't have to live in maybe that suck job nine to five that you just hate, right? There is other ways. We are all creative in one way or other. We all have passions. We just got to find out what that is, right? And sadly, it took me hitting rock bottom to find out what my passion was. And that's just helping people, right? At the end of the day, I, you know, like I said, I lived in the gray for 20, 22 years. And so when I hear somebody that's in that vulnerable state, I really go back to those really dark days that I had. 
because I can relate. I know exactly what they're going through. I know how they're feeling. I understand the helplessness that they, that they feel. So I feel that we're creating a huge awareness camp around just being not only a good human, but Hey, like I know psychedelics is really weird. I know mental health is really weird to talk about. And sadly, our apparel company is taking on mental health and psychedelics all wrapped in one pretty little bundle. So, you know, we're trying to we're trying to create something that says, hey, these are hard conversations to have. We know they're hard conversations. So let's have fun with them. And, and let's let's really dive into some things that not anyone's really wanting to touch. So I was I was. I was a brash guy when I was at corporate America. So I'm like, screw it, man. Like now I have no one tell me what I can or cannot say. So now <laughs> yeah, we can, now we can about. turn the volume yeah. up a little bit more. Yeah. It makes me think of uh stepbrothers where they show up in the tuxedos to do their job interview, you know? And they're like, how about, how about we do the interview? Why don't I ask you some questions? <laughs> that's, that's me. Boats and hose. Nice. Boats and hose. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's having that freedom, I think. Right. And knowing that, you know, you always want, you always want to do right by everyone. You don't want to ever offend anybody or piss anybody off, but it's going to happen. And there's going to be your haters. And I've already got some haters and they're looking over the fence and they, they still check in. It's kind of fun. Cause I'm like, how you doing? I see you still there. It's all good, man. I'm not going anywhere. So you better buckle up, you know? So it's kind of fun. It's, it's a little, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit of a grind on this apparel stuff as I kind of relayed you uh, a little bit, a little bit ago, but yeah, it's a, it's a grind, but man, am I learning so much stuff every single day of how this business works and how, if you maneuver it correctly, what you can kind of create to talk to the masses. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff, man. Well, that brings us to the fifth and final question on the Q5 podcast here. Who are you really, Chad? Who am I really? Man, I feel, and, I, and I've made this comment before on another podcast, but I really feel like I'm finding who that 17, 16-year-old goofy kid used to be. You know, like I said, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't play the sports. I was the guy that dressed up in the mascot and was goofy and was running on the field. And I was the guy there for spirit week, right, that wore, you know, back in the day, we could probably get away with it. We can't do it now. But, I, you know, I dressed up as a cheerleader, but I dressed up as, as a cheerleader. Yeah, yeah, yeah colors from the from the opposite yeah. school it was nerd day so you know yeah i was that guy i dressed up for spirit week people looked forward going okay what's chad coming in today you know what what's he got up his sleeve so i feel like i'm getting back to that creative like i don't care i'm trying to have fun i live life once but being respectful but also being you know just trying to be a loving caring individual because i know we are all going through some sort of a battle internally you know our tagline is conquer that battle within you know, so conquering the battle within and, and, and knowing that the stories that we tell ourselves, we don't have to believe those. They're really lies. And it all comes rooted from some sort of trauma within childhood or something that happened to us through that. So, again, I, I really feel like I'm getting back to the base of who that that fun, goofy 16-year-old kid was that really cared about everybody. You know, I mean, there wasn't a person in high school that I didn't say hi to or, you know, that I that I didn't want to have lunch with, you know. So I really feel like I'm getting back to that guy of, of open arms and how can I help you? And, hey, today's a brighter day. And my, my smile and stuff is, is a true smile. It's not masked anymore. Like when I'm smiling and having a good, that's who I am. Like I'm not doing it. So you don't understand I'm in pain and I'm on painkillers and I really am drinking behind all this. No, I'm, I'm a happier human being today than I was three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm going to ask you another question. Are you are you listening to like old 90s and double aughts like music? You're like on the Warp Tour. You're just playing like high school soundtracks all the time because I'm doing that now. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'll find myself. I listen to a lot of country music. And the reason I love country music is just the storytelling behind it. Like the lyrics sure. are really powerful yeah, and I yeah, go to yeah. a place pretty quick. But yeah, it's funny. I'll catch myself listening to to like you know, go on to Spotify and pull up No Doubt. Yeah. You know, I remember listening to No <laughs> yeah, Doubt. Yeah, yeah. And, a little Bush and, and a little No Doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bush, No <laughs> Doubt, Blink one eighty two, and you know, even even the the old school rap, you know, when I was in high school, the chronic came out with Dr. Dre, yeah. you know. And, yeah, I was a hardcore kid. I'm listening to like Deftones all the time now. <laughs> yeah. NWA, all that. And what's funny is here I am, this little white gringo kid up in Billings, Montana, and I'm listening to NWA and, <laughs> you know, whatever was, whatever we could get our hands yeah, on, yeah. right? Because, I mean, traditionally, Montana kid, you're, you, a lot of you listen to that country music. But yeah, I find myself going back to those old music nice. and jamming out to yeah. Toto and stuff too, you know? <laughs> so, the rain's there we go. Africa. There we go. <laughs> so, but yeah, overall, man, I, I, I really can't say, you know, outside of the business, you know, the business is tough, but I know where we're going and I have, you know, some down days or hours there just because maybe a collaboration didn't work out the way I wanted to, or the way I approached something might've been a little too aggressive. So I, you know, I got to relook at that differently. And so, but man, I'll I tell you what, for those folks that are listening out there that you're borderline, you don't understand the psychedelic world or, you know, what ketamine is. I, I tell you to jump in and, and read because there, there's plenty of research out there. Um, whether it's from John Hopkins, whether it's, you know, from Stanford or even, you know, an Andrew Huberman that talks about this or, you know, yourself, right? Like these things are changing our brains and they're regrowing these neurotransmitters and pathways that haven't talked to each other in years. And if I can be a testament to it, you know, kind of proof in the pudding, if you will, like just, I just tell people be open to this stuff, like remove the labels and just look at them for what they are. So. Yeah, brother. Well, it's been a pleasure hosting you on the podcast and uh, I'm looking forward to connecting with Carrie and getting her story out there as well. The complimentary stories from Mental Joe Apparel's founders. She's like, yeah, this guy. Yeah, this guy almost buried me. This goddamn <laughs> guy, Chad, I'll tell you what, what a pain in the ass. <laughs> you got any, uh, those are some great final thoughts. You got anything else you want to say? Brother? No, I don't, man. I always, I always appreciate the time that anybody wants to, you know, throw me on air and, and let me air my air my laundry out and just talk about you know how i've gotten to where i am today and again hopefully you know whether it resonates with one people or 100 people or whatever that looks like you know i i, I appreciate any platform I'm a, I'm a part of to to you know talk about these these medicines and talk about how we can be better human beings and again we just got to rip the labels off look at this stuff and dive in a little bit we got to help as I say, we have to own our shit. We got to hold ourselves accountable. Well, I appreciate your time and your message and your brand, my friend. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Doc out.